How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. It is a delight to have Dr. Carl Truman on the broadcast today. Dr. Truman is a Christian theologian and ecclesiastical historian. And we'll have to talk about what that means. He was professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster Seminary, where he held the Paul Woolley Chair of Church History. Currently, he's a full-time undergrad professor at Grove City College. I know some of our listeners went to Grove City. And serving as a full professor in their Department of Religious and Biblical Studies. Among Dr. Truman's books are John Owen, Reformed Catholic, Renaissance Man, The Creedal Imperative, Fools Rush In Where Monkeys Fear to Tread, <laughs> Taking Aim at Everyone, and Republicrat, Confessions of a Liberal Conservative. That's an oxymoron, Dr. Truman. Truman studied at Marling School, Gloucestershire, St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, and the University of Aberdeen, and previously taught at the University of Aberdeen and the University of Nottingham. Dr. Truman is ordained in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and was the pastor of Cornerstone, OPC, and Amber, PA. He also contributes to First Things, blogs regularly at Reformation 21, and co-hosts the podcast, Mortification of Spin. Dr. Truman, Carl, thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Quite a pedigree, my brother. Quite a pedigree. I've lived too long, stayed too long as well, probably. <laughs> no, no, no. You might have studied too long, but you haven't lived too long. And we need more of your ilk around. So for our audience on In Context that may not know you, I chatted with you before we recorded. A dear friend of Cindy's and mine, Spencer Brand, who lives in the Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area, and I are kind of theological hacks. We like to think and read stuff that most people don't. And he sent me some of your CDs, I believe, from 2016, and I couldn't get enough. And I think I ended up with five of your messages, and I said, we have to get Carl on the podcast. So as a backdrop, thanks. But for those of us maybe in a wider evangelical belt that might not know Carl Truman, more than your bio, give us a little insight on who's Carl. Well, you gave a pretty exhaustive account when you introduced me. I'm obviously not from America. I emigrated to the States in 2001 to take my job at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Married, two grown-up children, big fan of Gloucester, rugby club, pretty prosaic, really, on the whole. Live now in the middle of nowhere in Western Pennsylvania, which is absolutely delightful. Very, very peaceful. It's a beautiful country up there. People don't know it. It is. It's fantastic. Great place to see out the remaining years of my career. Oh, come on now. You're, I'm older than you, brother. Come on. You're just... Probably, but I'm already mentally cruising to retirement. <laughs> no, no, no. You can't do that. I'm, I'm 63 almost, and a guy who's 75 said, you can't stop. Yeah. I said, why not? He goes, you can't. The Lord won't let you. Uh, okay, you put it that way. You get spiritual on me. For those of us that know a little bit of church history, Orthodox Presbyterian Church is kind of a niche 
Yes, it's the denomination that was founded by a man called J. Gresham Machen. He was actually the person who founded Westminster Seminary as well. He was a Princeton professor. He left Princeton Seminary in 1929 when that seminary was reorganized along more kind of concessive liberal lines. He founded Westminster Seminary as a conservative Presbyterian institution. And then in the mid-1930s, he was effectively drummed out of the northern mainline Presbyterian church, and he founded what is today known as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's a small confessional Presbyterian denomination that holds to the Westminster Standards, that's the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the shorter and larger catechisms as a summary of its faith and belief. Now, let's jump in, because the and I know this may not be your stock and trade subject matter, but the CDs that I was given, you were speaking very interestingly, clearly, almost dogmatically about gender, sexuality, identity, how we've changed as a culture, even in Christian thinking. And this is an area we have talked about a number of times on In Context with other guests. I don't know if you know Dr. Rosario Butterfield. Oh, yes, uh, yes. Dr. Christopher Yuan and others have been good friends of mine for years. But you were talking about this from a theological, historical lens that I said, you know, it's like so many things, Carl. We don't teach history. People aren't learning these things. Yes, it's actually been a big area of interest for me the last few years. I had the privilege two years ago of being a, a fellow at Princeton University on the James Madison program studying the issue of identity. And what really got me interested in it was the way in which a lot of Christians seemed to me were caught completely off guard by the speed at which we moved from gay marriage, Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, through to the triumph, comprehensive triumph, it seems at times, of the transgender movement. And one of the reasons I think that Christians were caught off guard by that is we tend often to focus on symptoms. It's the immediate pressing symptom that we seize upon and try to understand and try to respond to without actually realizing that many of the things that we see in society today, for example, the strength of the gay rights lobby or the transgender movement, these rest upon social, intellectual, cultural changes that have been taking place for many centuries now. And what we're really seeing is the last few dominoes falling, if you like, and a long line of dominoes that's been set up for many years. So what I've tried to do in my writings and work over the last couple of years is to get Christians to think about the immediate presenting issues of the sexual revolution in terms of much broader and underlying and long-standing social and cultural changes. And also to realize that we ourselves are actually complicit in some of those changes. It's not a question of them doing this stuff to us. We ourselves are complicit in some of the cultural and social changes that have taken place. It's hard to know where to start with this, but I want to do a couple things. I want you to answer some of these questions, and then I want you to think about you know, these are my top five concerns for the church or whatever. Yeah. But one of the things I find fascinating, and you threw out the acronyms LGBT, see now plus seems to be the more common hashtag, if you will, LGBTQAI, and I say fill in the blank. Talk about, first of all, talk about gender and from a both a clinical definition and then how we as a culture, Christians and others started, you know, flattening this idea out. 
Yeah, well, the big, I think that a good thinker to look at as a kind of place where, if you like, the problem starts is Simone de Beauvoir, who was the lover, companion of the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. And I think actually de Beauvoir was probably the more brilliant of the two philosophers. And her book, 1949, she wrote a book called The Second Sex, which was a study of the perception of women throughout history, and then an analysis of what it meant to be a woman. And she makes a very interesting statement at the beginning of part two of that book, where she says, one is not born, one becomes a woman. And underlying that was a basic separation she was making between the physical constitution of being a woman and what we might say, the patterns of behavior, the way of thinking, the expectations, etc., of what is meant to be a woman. And what we've seen in the years since is the slow and steady triumph of the latter things as being determinative of what makes a woman. It's her social behavior. It's a set of learned behaviors. It's an identity. It's not a biological reality. So, when we think about sex and gender, most Christians automatically identify the two. We think you know, you're born a man, you're born a woman, but that's not the way a lot of people think today. Biology is one thing, but our minds have been mesmerized by this idea that actually gender refers to a set of learned or imposed attitudes and behaviors. So there is this separation in contemporary thinking between biological sex and gender identity. And that, of course, opens the way for transgenderism. I may have the body of a man, but if I feel inside that I am a woman, if I want to behave as I see other women behaving, then really my biology has to give way to my inner psychological convictions about my identity. So one of the arguments I use, it is perhaps non sequitur or, you know, it doesn't, carry weight is, if we follow gender dysphoria, I've always felt like I was a man, a woman, and my gender, I would argue that I'm a womanizer, that God made me a womanizer because I love women. I think women are beautiful, and I am tempted like most red-blooded American and Scottish and UK men too. I'm tempted. We're all tempted, yet my identity isn't a womanizer, and I don't act out on that dysphoria, if you will. Because, you know, I can't conquest every woman. And I made a vow before God and these witnesses, a commitment to Christ, a commitment to my wife and my family, that I would be a one man, one wife, uh, the rest of my life to Cindy. And so tell me where I'm wrong with this thing. Well, I would argue that from a biblical perspective, you're absolutely correct. I think that where we live today, and there are a lot of reasons, some of them not particularly sexual for this, but we live in a culture where particular psychological traits now enjoy the privilege of identities and which, being which a womanizer I, which let me interrupt we go back to dsm dsm 2 and 3 where these interests or proclivities were looked at as a mental disturbance oh yes yes and i think one of the things we've seen in the last half century or so is that things that were once upon a time regarded as as mental aberrations from the norm have become the norm such that those of us who don't go along with them are now regarded as you know bigots or as psychologically deficient in some way camille pallia who is uh 
lesbian, feminist, cultural critic, makes the point that one can't identify as a foot fetishist. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one can identify as, be a man, identify as a woman, one can identify as gay, one can't identify as a foot fetishist. And she asks the question, why? And the answer she comes up with is, no lobby groups. There are powerful wow. political interests. And I don't think you can separate the history of why certain identities are considered legitimate from broader questions of who has representation politically, who has caught the cultural moment and exploited it politically. That's frightening. Sexuality in broad strokes, it's almost like saying define theology. But how do we define and understand sexuality? Well, again, that's an interesting question, because I would say, if you look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't really talk about sexuality. The Bible certainly contains sex, but sex in the Bible is, it's an activity. There's no such thing as sexual identity in the Bible. Um, one of the things, again, we could look at this historically, but really since Sigmund Freud in the late 19th, early 20th century, sex has shifted from being an activity, from being something we do, to being something we are. Mm. So we now have you know, the concept of the gay person. Uh, I might almost also add, you know, we now have the concept of the heterosexual. Uh, if somebody said to me, are you a heterosexual? I think I'd probably, I'd probably hesitate. I know what they mean, but I think I'd probably say no, because that's not my identity. But of course, it is the way identity is thought of in contemporary society. The Bible doesn't have any category of heterosexual. It has men, it has women, and it has men having sex with women to produce children. It doesn't have these variegated and fine distinctions that allow for sex to be considered as an identity rather than an activity. Let's then go to identity. How do we put some guardrails on defining identity? Again, that's very, very hard. And part of it, I would want to take a step back and say, well, what is it that forges our identity? Well, by and large, our identities are forged by our relationships with other people, such that if I were to say to you, Michael, you know, what would it be like if you'd been born in Japan to Japanese parents and you'd grown up in Tokyo and gone to school, what would it be like to be you? You'd probably turn around to me and say, it's impossible to imagine because that wouldn't actually be me. Right. And an awful lot of who we are is connected to how we relate to other people and other institutions. And that's where I think the church is significant for us, in that as Christians in this world where identity is really up for grabs and in a state of great flux at the moment, we need a solid community to tell us who we are. It's actually why the LGBTQ community has become so successful, because it did have a strong community and a reinforcing of identity that has made them a powerful and potent social and cultural force. I think if you were to say, where do we put the guardrails on identity? My first point is going to be, you've got to be in a good church because it's the people you connect with. It's the message you hear. It's the songs you sing. It's the prayers you pray. It's the way you talk to your fellow believers. That's what's going to forge and shape your identity. Paul sort of points to this in Corinthians when he says, you know, bad company corrupts morals. And at a simple level, that's just saying you hang around with bad people, you end up mimicking what they do. One could put it a more sophisticated spin on it and say, you know, if you hang around with bad people, that transforms who you are because your relationships 
become relationships with bad people. And that has a blowback on who you are. So I would say, rather than sit down and say, okay, I'm going to draw up a list of boundaries where you must not pass in order to have an appropriate identity. The first thing I'm going to say is you need to be in a good church where the Bible's believed and preached and where people live out their faith, because that is going to shape and form your character and your personality in intuitive ways. Move over to the LGBTQAI person who, let's say we have a collegial conversation with, these aren't activists, these aren't people yelling and screaming and mad at us, and vice versa. And they say, well, this is my identity. I've always felt this way. I've always known I was fill in the blank. How would you have that conversation? It's a hard conversation to have because, of course, every individual is an individual. And when you're having pastoral conversations, there's a whole host of unique circumstances that play into how you would address a particular person. But I think in terms of long-term strategic goals, one, one would want to acknowledge that sexual desire is a powerful force in our lives. Though I would not want to say it was an identity, it's certainly a constitutive factor of who we are and we think about the world. Secondly, I would want to talk to the person about why do they therefore think that those desires are absolutely constitutive of their identity. Yes, we can acknowledge their existence, but let's not allow them to be absolutely determinative of one's identity. Thirdly, I would want to make sure that in whatever context that conversation was taking place, that I had an equally strong community which I could offer to them that they could belong to that would help to shape their notion of identity and selfhood in healthy and appropriate ways. I do think it's very important to make the distinction that you made right at the beginning of that question, that there's a difference between how we address LBGTQ issues as they're being played out politically in the public square, and how we address the individual who is struggling with torn up by or perhaps very comfortable in their particular sexual identity, but who needs to be confronted with the claims of the gospel. I remember in conversations both with Rosario and Christopher Yuan independently that it's very difficult to say, I respect you as a person. I love you. I'm not mad at you. But when you identify with a feeling, with emotions, with a social construct, you know, that baseline, all bets are off. There is no end to, that's why I use the pejorative fill in the blank. You know, yeah. what's the next letter coming down? We also see an internal tension between these groups because the pure feminists and the older lesbian, and I mean that, you know, they've been out longer, they don't like this infringement of saying, I'm not transgendered. I'm not a politically activist person. I'm a person that, you know, I've chosen, I love this person. We, you know, this is who we are. And we're not out there, you know, metaphorically burning torches, yelling and screaming and lobbying. So it's a Pandora's box. And then you say, how do you love one another? And Rosario and Christopher and I have said the same thing. It's not loving if you don't love a person enough to say, you know, I call you to repentance. I call you to think differently than what the culture has told you. Oh, yeah. I think that that is part and parcel of presenting them with the gospel. And again, you're absolutely correct that the LGBTQ alliance is 
to some extent, an alliance of convenience. It's united by what it opposes, and that is essentially white, heterosexual, male normativity. But within itself, you know, lesbians have, have been in tension with gays since the the early 1980s, the transgender lobby is blowing radical feminism in two. So the movement is, it has an illusion of unity, but it's really united essentially by the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of mentality. So I want to go back to in your messages that you gave. Again, for our listeners, you were speaking at a conference center and you were coming out pretty strong about not only how they should think, but where the church may have had some culpability. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the issues that the church never really grappled with was no-fault divorce, because no-fault divorce is really the moment at which marriage in the West is compromised and redefined. Prior to no-fault divorce, marriage was a lifelong bond between a man and a woman, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, richer, poorer, etc., etc., till death us do part, to be dissolved only in very extreme circumstances, such as spousal infidelity or abandonment. In other words, there had to be a cause, a very serious cause for marriage to be dissolved. Uh, Once you allow for no-fault divorce, what you're effectively saying is that marriage is a sentimental bond that exists between two people until such point that it is no longer convenient for the two people for it to exist anymore. You've turned it from the biblical teaching on marriage into a human contract for mutual pleasure, happiness, convenience. The church, of course, didn't really take any stand against that. I suspect many churches contain members or regular worshippers who went through divorces like that with never being challenged by the church. And it puts the church in a very, very tight position when we're then faced with, say, gay marriage. And we want to take the high ground of, you know, we have a very high view of marriage. The obvious response from advocates of gay marriage is going to be, well, where is your high view of marriage? Let's look at how you've behaved towards these biblical standards that you claim to hold so dear over the last 40, 50 years. And I fear the church doesn't measure up on that point, that that's actually a pretty powerful argument that can be made by advocates of gay marriage against the church. And I will use the word evangelical broadly, Bible-believing, evangelical, fundamental, and some a good percentage of conservative Presbyterian churches, right, would say, yeah, divorce is wrong in most cases, but They've really softened. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to say it's wrong in theory. It's another thing to start disciplining and excommunicating people for being involved with such things. And that's where I think the, you know, there's the paper orthodoxy of the churches, and then there's the actual practice. And when there's a serious discontinuity between the paper orthodoxy and the practice, Our critics and our opponents, I think, are perfectly justified in pointing to that inconsistency and demanding that we explain it. When you talk about church discipline, excommunication, I mean, goodness, the percentage of Western churches that are going to implement that over a divorce. I mean, it's one thing if it's sexual abuse or perhaps a criminality that, you know, a spouse ends up in jail or prosecuted for some 
crime potentially. And then we'd say, oh, sure, that's a clear one, you know, but for a divorcer, and I use this very cautiously quotes, biblical <laughs> divorce, close quote, you know, I have a, that's a whole other subject. But oh, let's yeah. say that there's some rationale for this, that's going to be a very small percentage. Oh, yeah. And it's hard. I mean, discipline cases are hard. And as you said, you know, my articulation of uh, adultery and abandonment as two grounds for divorce, not everybody, I think John Piper, for example, would reject those as grounds for divorce. You say that's actually, you know, Truman, you're kind of on the more concessive end of the spectrum. Right. right. Well, there's that gradient Uh, among us that we don't agree on. Yeah. But even taking those extreme ends aside, whether everything's okay or, you know, everything's wrong, because, you know, for decades, I was under the no divorce, no remarriage moniker. And uh, even to the point of, well, if your spouse divorces you, as 1 Corinthians 7 articulates the reality that you live as a single man or woman until such that your spouse dies or, you know, whatever. Well, you preach that today. Good luck. You know, on the other side of it, grace, mercy, it's not the unforgivable sin. Obviously, repentance brings us all back to the cross. Nobody is, you know, without sin and no one is unable to be forgiven or restored, but it's the church. We took our hand off that tiller. You said no fault in marriage. I would say certainly by the late eighties, the Western oh, church yeah. took the hand off the tiller and said, we're not going to discipline for divorces. Yeah. And of course the, the irony from a political conservative perspective is that no fault divorce is introduced to America by Ronald Reagan when he's governor of California. So I say that sometimes the students at Grove, I say, you know who redefined divorce in America? Ronald Reagan, who's a bit of a, a hero at Grove. Uh, I think he was that, on his second marriage at that point. Oh, yeah. Uh, that makes third. them sit up and pay attention. Yeah, it's hard. Um, it's and hard. that's not a criticism of Reagan too core, by the way. But it's just say it's interesting that we need to do some soul searching before we start pontificating to others about the redefinition of marriage. Well, let's go back. because you, you talked about Obergefell, and I keep citing, and I believe it was Justice Sullivan, who said the litmus of this is going to be religious freedom. Yeah, because the moment you say from a governmental standpoint, and we would say civil and some religious ceremonies that same sex or some definition of those can marry at some point, you know, it's not just bake the cake, it's perform the wedding. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got a conflict because most churches, if they're, you know, more than 10 or 15 years old, may have a definition of one man, one woman for life. And now they're told, if you don't marry me, I'm going to sue you. And so religious, and I think we've lost this argument. I think it's, you know, the cows have left the barn and the fences are all down. I don't know how you reclaim that if it's even possible, but you know, pragmatics of this for the local church, wise as serpents, gentle as dust, this becomes challenging, Carl. Oh yeah. I mean, I think there are various things you can do to sort of postpone the evil day when it's going to descend upon you. For example, when I was pastor, we had a rule that uh, we would only allow people to be married in our church who were members of our church. So we, we shifted the issue to membership away from marriage there. I know of at least one pastor who now says that he, he doesn't do any marriages at all because that's just a clean way of making sure he doesn't run into trouble on this one. And again, to go back to when we're talking about no-fault divorce, again, if your church has married a couple who've come out of no-fault divorces, and then you refuse to marry a gay couple, you're going to find yourself 
you know, facing some interesting legal arguments relative to your application of your biblical standards somewhat selectively. So this could be a very challenging issue. And I think more than religious freedom, I think the whole sexual identity thing connects to freedom of speech, which of course is closely connected to freedom of religion in that in a world where identity is psychologically constructed, uh, oppression becomes psychological. And if your primary model of oppression is that it's somebody psychologically oppressing me, then freedom of speech, the ability to speak freely about other people and say what you think about them, becomes part of the problem, not part of the solution. So I think the sexual revolution, it has much broader implications for traditional notions of freedom than merely freedom of religion. I think it will also affect freedom of speech in the medium to long term. Let's come back to a church in the United States. Their sons and daughters were raised in a, let's say, a, a C-plus or better youth group. They were taught the Bible as children. They might even have things like, you know, a purity classes to keep yeah. kids from getting involved, et cetera. They go off to the first year to the local state university, and they're challenged by men and women with big PhDs in front of their names, yeah. and their faith is rocked. In one, two semesters, they come home, and they say, well, Dad, that's how God made them. Yeah. Well, why is this such a big deal? Doesn't God love people? And so now we've got this generation that has in large percentage walked away from, quote, the church, close quote, because they don't hold these truths yeah. the way we tried to teach them. Yeah, and I think you're pointing to one of the major challenges there. Again, it's hard to generalize because every young person may abandon the faith for a particularly unique reason. But I would say one of the things that we've not done well in the church is quite often we've taught people superficially very well. You know, why shouldn't I sleep with my girlfriend before marriage? Because the Bible says you shouldn't. And that's a good reason, but it's not a particularly strong reason for somebody who's coming under pressure at their college to provide good grounds for that. One of the things I said about many of the kids I've taught over the years is that they often know what they believe. They know what the Bible says, but they don't know why the Bible says it. I think what we need to do in our churches is be very proactive, not simply in teaching Bible truth, but in teaching Bible truth as an integrated whole. Uh, why is it wrong to sleep around? You know, if sleeping around is great fun, why is it wrong to do it? Well, to answer that appropriately, it's not enough just to point to a couple of Bible texts. I think a full-orbed biblical vision about what sex is for needs to be communicated. A full orb vision of what marriage is for needs to be communicated to the kids. So we live now at a time where, you know, when I was growing up in 1970s, 1980s in Britain, we might say the general pathologies or tendencies of the culture were sort of in line with the general emphases thinking of the Bible. My parents weren't Christians, but they didn't think people should sleep together before marriage. They didn't approve of homosexuality, that kind of thing. The general culture was in line, broadly speaking, with Christian ethics. And I think that made Christians very lazy in how we taught our young people. 
We're now in a situation where the culture is not simply not in line with Christian ethics anymore. It's diametrically opposed to Christian ethics. It regards Christian ethics as oppressive, as denigrating people, as forcing people to deny who they really are. That's a very different situation to the one you and I grew up in. And it's one that demands, I think, much more proactive teaching and proactive thinking about teaching in the church on key issues, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of marriage, all of these things need to be dealt with in more significant depth and with much clearer and self-conscious teaching than perhaps we had when we were growing up. So again, I'm going to push you a little bit. Help me. You know, I've been raising my kids. They were in a water program. They were royal ambassadors. They were in Young Life. They were in, you know, fill in the blank. But, you know, they ain't buying it. You know, look, Dad, they're made that way. Yeah. Carl, they're made that way. I mean, what's the harm in it? Can't you be loving? Can't you be forgiving? Yeah. Well, there are a number of ways one could approach that. I mean, first of all, just as when somebody says to me, there's no harm in homosexuality, you can go to government web pages and you can see the damage that male homosexual activity physically does to the bodies of these young men who are engaged in it. There are certain arguments you could bring forth from a sort of scientific evidence perspective. Bottom line is, I think if somebody won't buy the Bible's account of creation and fall, there's not a lot you can do to persuade them ultimately. I mean, my argument against homosexuality, by and large, is going to track back to the fact that human beings were created in a particular way to behave and act and think in certain ways. And that's been messed up by the fall to the extent that now we can't simply rely on, for want of a better term, our biological instincts to tell us what is good and proper behavior. Now, Ultimately, believing that argument is is something supernatural. I can present it to my kids. I can present it as persuasively as possible. But conviction of sin is an act of the Holy Spirit. I can only fulfill my responsibility as a parent to the extent that I can fulfill it. At some point, my children have to take responsibility for their own thinking. And at some point, they either come to faith or they don't. Can a Christian, man, woman, Christian, be a celibate homosexual, a celibate gay, a celibate lesbian, a celibate transgendered, a celibate fill in the blank? Again, that's a tough question. And, that's and why like I'm a, asking you. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> this is a tough interview, man. Well, that, that's, the tra- that's our traffic, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. That's the yeah. commerce that we live in. Yeah. Is that, well, I won't mention names, but there are conferences going all in. Oh, yeah. Uh, some churches that I was quite aghast hosting some of these conferences. Yeah, it's tearing the PCA apart, yeah, this issue. I mean, got, yeah. And then they just nuance it a little bit. Yeah. And let's have a conversation with yeah. the LGBTQ. Let's yeah. have a dialogue. These words we celebrate in academia dialogue. Yeah. But I mean, the rubber eats the road at some point. The question has to be answered. Yeah. I mean, is it possible to be, again, I probably make a distinction here between dealing with individuals and the general principle. And I would say the problem with the gay celibate movements as a principle is, I think it's asking the wrong question. When I was a teenager, maybe it was the same with you, the big question for Christians, you know, you're dating, you're a girlfriend. And the big question is, you know, how far can I go with my girlfriend? before I'm committing sin. 
Well, you know the answer to that. Well, the answer to that for me is if you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. No, no, it's it's, it's called platonic from the neck up. Yes. <laughs> I'm well, sorry. Yeah, that's, that's a good answer. But, but to me, as soon as you ask that question, you're kind of setting yourself up for a fall. And I think that pastorally, pastorally, this idea that it's okay to affirm yourself as gay, providing you're celibate, and it's okay to have these close same-sex friendships, providing they don't go too far, that's a recipe for disaster. To some extent, that's a little bit like saying, you know, if somebody came up to me and said, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I haven't had a drink for years, but I'm an alcoholic and I've been offered a job in a bar, would it be sinful for me to take it? My response is going to be, it's not sinful to take a job in a bar, but it's profoundly stupid for somebody who struggles the way you do to do this. At least it's not very wise, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's what I worry about these conferences is, and I don't know, I've not really followed them in great deal. What I worry is that they're really pastorally disastrous because I think somebody struggling with a particular sin, sinful proclivity, needs clear teaching on that. They don't need to be told, well, that's okay. You can go 60% of the way as long as you pull back. I think the idea of the gay celibate Christian, I want to affirm, yeah, celibacy is a good thing for somebody struggling with same-sex attraction. If that's the sin that you're struggling with, it's a good thing to be celibate. It's right and proper to be celibate. But I don't want the church buying into gay identity. A, it's pastorally cruel. And as I alluded to earlier on when I said, you know, sex in the Bible is not an identity, it's an activity. I think it's non or unbiblical to think of ourselves in terms of, you know, my sexual desire is the most fundamental part of my identity. I just don't like the celibate gay Christian movement at all. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. I fear it will end up going dramatically in the wrong direction. It looks to me like a well-intentioned attempt to do something which is inherently unstable and will not fall the way of orthodoxy ultimately. Encourage, talk to the pastor, Carl, who is, you know, maybe it's not that he's waffled on this subject. He's never addressed it. He's never talked about it. And he's got, you know, let's just say in a church of a hundred or a thousand, there are X percentage of men and women who struggle with same-sex attraction, who are maybe in and out of uh, LBGT lifestyle. Uh, And, you know, if he comes out hard or soft or help him. First of all, help him begin and then think through what steps, because we don't want this to be the pulpit. I mean, at some point, we're trying to teach people the word of Christ. We're trying to teach them to grow in discipleship. If they don't know Christ to come to salvation, we're trying to teach them, you know, raise your children to love the Lord the best you can, be a good worker, et cetera, be involved in the kingdom, not just a career, but they're out there in the audience. And to not speak in some respect is negligence. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, a good sermon series is basic to this, if the pastor's never addressed it. I would suggest probably not you know, a sermon series with the title of Why Gay is Not Okay or something like right, that. Right, right. I think it's good to address. What I would want to do is, our game as pastors, our agenda as pastors, is to get people thinking holistically and biblically in such a way that any issue they face, whether it's stealing or sexuality, is always set within the context of God's bigger story 
within a larger theological framework, I think probably a series of sermons on creation and fall might be a good place to address this kind of thing where you can set forth the beautiful vision of creation, the beautiful vision that the Lord has for men and women in creation, and then look at the way that the fall has distorted that. That allows you to get at various things, not just sexuality. It doesn't just look as if you're going after a particular section of the congregation. You're actually setting a good framework for addressing sexual morality within the broader context of God's creation purposes. Secondly, I think if there are individuals in your congregation who have particular difficulties with sexuality, sexual desire, etc., meet with them, talk to them. Thirdly, the church should be an environment where everybody feels loved so that if they have to speak or they have to tell the pastor about some dark secret they have, they know the pastor's going to sit and listen. Even if he has hard words for them, he's not going to be cruel he may simply chasten them for their own good. And they know that. They have a relationship with their pastor whereby they know that whatever he says to them is not being driven by spite or a desire to manipulate or impose himself on them. And I would also say that if you have somebody struggling with sexuality issues, sexual dysfunction, get them special help as well. There are groups out there, Harvest, I don't know if they're a national group now, but they certainly have a couple of bases, one in Pittsburgh and one in Philadelphia. Harvest is a group that specializes in working with people who have been sexually damaged or sexually dysfunctional in some way. They have A lot of their work actually is done with young men who struggle with internet pornography, which frankly is probably a bigger scourge of the church than same-sex attraction is. But I do think sometimes you need to connect those facing these issues with people who can be particularly sympathetic, with people who really do understand the plight in all of its aspects and are able to offer support and help. So I would say it's got to be a multi-pronged approach, but basic to any approach to any pastoral problem has to be good, solid teaching that encourages people to set any given issue within the context of the Bible as a whole. Now, I wanted you to address, and you may have already touched on some, Carl, but address your top, you know, two, three, four, five concerns as you look at not only the church, but the university, especially our younger minds. Hmm. Because it seems many of us, when we're over, what, 40, we've kind of made our mind up. Yeah. But the culture certainly is endorsing this is normative. And not only do you have to be tolerant and accepting, you have to embrace it and you have to endorse it. And this is where my concern is beyond the bake the cake, marry the couple. It's mandated. You must endorse it or you're misogynist, you're fascist, you're fill in the blank. So as you look at sort of the landscape, long question, I'm sorry. Look at the landscape. What are your top concerns? I think freedom of religion is clearly something that's going to come under huge pressure in the next, I was going to say 20 or 30 years. It could be much sooner than that. I don't want to sound like a catastrophist, but it could be. Clearly, when Things that are central to the Christian faith, and I think man, woman, the appropriate use of sex is central really to the Christian faith. When that collides so dramatically with the cultural current, something's going to give. Christianity will no longer be regarded as a benign or positive social force. It will become 
part of the problem. So I think religious freedom. There will be some interesting First Amendment cases coming down the pike, I'm sure. I'm not quite sure on what topic they will be, but religious freedom will come under huge pressure. I fear for the rising generation of young people that we've done such a bad job in teaching the generation of their parents that the game could be all but lost in the sort of the generation of what will be my grandchildren, I presume. But that's not to say we should give up now. I think we shouldn't just see that we goofed and despair. We should even now be trying to do some of the things we've talked about in this program, trying to proactively address the situation, even if it's simply mitigating the damage at this point. Thirdly, I do think that the transgender issue is an interesting one to watch. And I think that the sexual revolution might founder on transgenderism because what we will have in 20, 30 years' time are a bunch of kids who are effectively used as chemical experiments by their parents and by certain doctors today. 20, 30 years down the line, it would not surprise me if we see them emerging and suing their parents the doctors and the insurance companies that paid for it all for having screwed them up. Mm. I'm actually relatively optimistic on the transgender front that this will be looked back on in a hundred years' time as we look back on lobotomies of the early 20th century. I think this is a horrible, freakish experiment and Time and, interestingly enough, lawyers will ultimately persuade society that that's the case. So I think religious freedom, the need to even now start a rearguard action in educating the next generation. And thirdly, praying and watching the transgender situation closely. Those are the three things that I would say are my big giveaways at this point. You know, it's interesting, the transgendered, and I forget his name at the moment, the Johns Hopkins surgeon. Oh, yes. Yeah, um, I know who you mean. It'll come to me in a moment. But he apparently was either involved with early on in these surgical procedures and then came out later and cited not only medical reasons why, but emotional, psychological yeah. dynamics, uh, suicide rates, etc. And, you know, again, I'm kind of a simpleton at the end of the day in a discussion not long ago with a friend. I said, you know, you're X or Y. And yeah. when you stop hormone therapy or surgical treatments, you're X or Y. Yeah, And if we want to talk about identity, and I appreciate you know your caution with using that term, but if we want to talk about if I was born a man or a woman, even when there's a birth defects early on, a very small percentage of people where it's not obvious, they've shown that by prepubescence and adolescence, XY becomes dominant. And so you know, then it's like, okay, you correct this, but our identity can't be our passion, our desire, our lust, our longing, our craving. I mean, to me, it seems like, and as long as that's passionate, yeah. And as soon as I no longer like vanilla, then I like chocolate, I like Rocky Road, I like pepper. You know, our identity is such a fleeting thing. It's like emotions, correct? You just you can't be identified based on how you feel about something. I have a book actually coming out later this year on this, where I look at the history of the rise of the psychologically constructed self. And I think it's deep and long-standing, but it's also highly unstable that I am not my feelings. As you said, you know, I could be convinced I'm Napoleon. <laughs> to me, that would be much more cool than being convinced I'm a woman. And the only evidence I'm not Napoleon, of course, is my body. <laughs> uh, 
which exists at a particular point in time. But, you know, if I think I'm Napoleon, then rightly, I should be sectioned. And I think we will come to see that the psychological identities we're allowing people to get away with, we're encouraging people to have, are quite literally madness, quite literally madness. Dr. Carl Truman, thanks for giving us some of your time. So appreciative. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.